This is actually a very fitting passage for Christmas. I hope that you will see that soon. Here's my kind of thesis this morning, that we, we cannot understand the Bible correctly if we fail to see that God communicates to us through signs or types. So when we're studying the Bible, it's true that we need to approach it grammatically. We need to ask the question, what does this word mean? What does this verb tense mean? We also need to approach the Bible historically. We need to ask, well, when did this happen? What was the cultural context? What would this have meant to the original audience? But it is equally true that we have to approach the Bible typologically. Remember that a type is something that prefigures or foreshadows something else that's to come. The anti-type is what the type points to. And this idea of type and anti-type is not something that theologians invented. Rather, it came from God himself. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, quickly. The difficulty with this particular verse is that we are so familiar with it that we might fail to see that this is actually the origin of typology. Genesis chapter 3, what does it say? So let's start in verse 14. This is right after the fall, and God starts meeting out the judgment. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the Bible here is actually talking about two different things, two different subjects. So who is God primarily speaking to in verse 14? Physical snakes. They're the ones that are cursed below the cattle. They're the ones that will eat dust all the days of their life, right? But who is God speaking to in verse 15? And and he does it like under the radar. He doesn't say, and now I'm speaking to, no, he just says you. He's speaking to the devil. Christ, the seed of the woman, the one who's born of the Virgin Mary, did not come to crush a physical snake's head. He came to crush the devil's head. So from the very beginning of Scripture, God is teaching us typology. A physical serpent is a type of the devil who is the anti-type. So in our passage this morning, we see typology again. Moses is giving us three signs, three types as it were, that point to something else. And we know these are signs because the the text specifically tells us in verses 8 and 9, God says, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, then they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not even believe these two signs, then he provides one more. So signs like types are 
what C.S. Lewis was fond of saying, a deeper kind of magic. They reveal something to us deeper than what's on the surface. They express a truth, a truth that goes down. And, and that's why we can read the Bible today and look at this historical event and say, you know what, there's something here for us right now. Uh, these signs that Moses saw were indeed incredible miracles, incredible displays of the almighty power of God, but they were not mere displays of his power. Uh, these signs, just like the baptism that we just saw, reveal a deeper story. In fact, they were meant to tell the Christmas story. How God sent his son into the world to defeat the serpent, to heal our leprous hearts, and to make satisfaction for our sins by his own blood. So here's our big idea this morning. God tells us the story of Jesus Christ delivering us from our slavery to sin through wonderful signs that we may believe. So three parts to our message. First, the staff and the serpent. Secondly, the disease and its cure. And then thirdly, the water and the blood. So let's look first of all at the staff and the serpent. And if you're just now joining us, the context is that Moses is on Mount Horeb, he was tending Jethro's sheep. He saw a burning bush. The angel of the Lord spoke out of the bush. And this angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. And he told Moses that he was commissioning him to be an instrument of deliverance to set Israel free from their slavery to Egypt. And Moses then began to ask a series of questions. First, he said, well, who am I that, that I would do this. And then he asks, but who are you, God? So arriving here in chapter 4, Moses begins to raise objections to his mission. Shows us very much the double-mindedness of men, doesn't it? Back in chapter 2, he was gun-ho to go on this mission. And now he shrinks back at the thought of it. We'll see that more in our first message at the beginning of the year. But arriving at chapter 4, please look with me at, chapter one, at verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So who is the they that Moses has in mind here? Who is the they that won't believe me? Uh, well, he's not talking about the Egyptians uh, it was a foregone conclusion that the Egyptians wouldn't believe him. He's talking about Israel. What if Israel doesn't believe me? Um, and God answers him by graciously giving him three signs. And so let's look at the first sign. Verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is in your hand? He said, a staff. Now, let's stop right there. This staff is actually going to play a predominant role in the redemption of Israel. The Lord actually attached power to it. Uh, in fact, look at verse 20 in this same chapter. Look at what it's called at the end of the verse. Moses took the staff of God in his hand. This is called the staff of God. It was this staff that turned the Nile into blood. Chapter 7, verse 20. It 
um, summoned the frogs that covered Egypt. Chapter 8, verse 5. It turned the dust into gnats. Chapter 8, verse 17. It brought the thunder and the hail. Chapter 9, verse 23. It called forth the locusts. Chapter 10, verse 13. And it divided the Red Sea. Chapter 14, verse 16. Now, of course, Israel didn't know all of these things that were going to happen with that staff, but they did know what a staff was for. After all, they were shepherds. A a shepherd's staff is used to lead, to govern, and to defend the flock. That's what a staff is for, to lead, govern, and defend the flock. And this staff was a sign that uh, to Israel that Moses was going to lead, govern, and defend them. Let's look what happens next. Look at with me at verse 3. The Lord tells Moses, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Now, children, why did Moses run from this serpent? Because he was scared, right? I mean, serpents bite and kill you. Moses was afraid of it. But, but children, is there a deeper truth here? Yes. What did the serpent represent? Well, we already saw it in Genesis 3. It represented, it represented Satan and his seed. Moses and Israel would have known this. It would have been secondhand knowledge to them. Oh, serpent, Satan, serpent, Satan. They knew that that is how sin came into the world, through that ancient serpent right there. And furthermore, not accidentally, Egypt identified with serpents. Listen to how one historian records this fact. Quote, the cobra represented in particular the national god of lower Egypt and was the foremost symbol of Pharaoh. Reflecting his claim to divine royalty, sovereignty, and power. Therefore, the snake constantly appears on his crown or helmet and depicted in reliefs, paintings, and statues. His scepter is often a stylized cobra. Do you guys remember that uh, cartoon Aladdin? It's kind of my generation, I suppose. Uh, the, the bad magician dudes, uh, Jafar. His staff was a cobra, Right? Even the Egyptian gods are frequently depicted with a scepter in the form of a snake, end quote. Israel would have seen Egyptians, uh, the Egyptians' uh, uh, care for snakes, their, their desire for snakes to be, to be symbolized by them. They knew Egypt was the serpent incarnate. So what happens next? Well, Moses is staring at this slithering, hissing snake that's on the ground in front of him. Uh, Look at verse 4. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Now, knowing what I just said, what would this signify to Israel? Well, Israel was under the oppression of the serpent, under Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But now, 
God, through his power, was going to pick up that snake and turn it into a dead stick. Yahweh has authority over the serpent. Israel would have understood the sign immediately. Uh, that's why the Lord says in verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. This sign is a story of their being set free from the serpent, and it came with this demonstration of power. But there's a deeper magic for us, a deeper truth. Just as the entire Exodus account is a type of the redemption wrought for us by Christ, so this sign points to something Christ accomplished. Dear congregation, this, this first sign is for you, that Christ, who is the staff of God, the shepherd of God, became the cursed serpent in order to set you free. Listen how Jonathan Edwards puts it here. Quote, Moses cast his staff on the ground, and it became a serpent, and he took it up, and it became a staff again signifying how that Christ, when he was sent down by God to the earth and was made sin for us, became guilty for our sakes, was accursed and appeared in the form of sinful flesh. He appeared in our stead, having our guilt imputed to him, who are indeed a generation of vipers. The staff became a serpent. So Christ, by his being made sin for us, destroyed sin and Satan. See, that's the scandal of Christmas. We celebrate the fact that Christ came into the world to do what? To crush the serpent. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. But how did he do it? How did he destroy the works of the devil? By becoming the serpent. The shepherd became the serpent. He, Jesus didn't literally become um, the devil, but he did become the embodiment of the curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ became a curse. In order to set you free from a slavery that you can't touch or see. You know, the serpent that enslaved us was much more powerful than the serpent that enslaved Israel. At least Moses could escape Pharaoh and, and flee to Midian, but no human being has ever been able to escape from this serpent. Children, you guys remember, not in the movie, in the book, Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo and the Hobbits, they just left Tom Bombadil's house and they had to travel through the Barrow Downs. And it was one of the most terrifying chapters in the book. The, the Barrow Downs were treeless hills with mounds, with grave mounds on top of them. And the backstory was that a witch king had unleashed evil spirits that haunted these grave sites for a thousand years. And Tom Bombadil told them to not go near them. Uh, apparently, they were either 
ignorant or stupid or a little combination of the both. They sat down next to one of the mounds. They ate lunch. They fell asleep. And when they woke up, it was dark and foggy. And they panicked. And they attempted to escape Um, But they got captured by an evil spirit and they got drugged underneath these burial sites. Mary, Pippin, and Sam are all laying down. They're in a spell and there's a sword that is laying across their throats. And Frodo is absolutely terrified. He realizes that there's no hope of escape. How did they escape? They actually didn't. They were rescued. Tom Bombadil came in in a stream of light, and he vanquished the evil spirit. That's how Scripture describes our slavery to the devil. Loved ones, before Christ set you free, you were under the power of Satan, Acts 26, 18. You were imprisoned in the domain of darkness, Colossians 1, 13. You were um, blinded by the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. You were in the snare of the devil. You were captured by him to do his will, 2 Timothy 2, 26. We were helpless and hopeless beyond any measure of escape. But don't you see that when God sent forth his son into the world, he broke the power of the devil. He turned it into a dry stick. That's the gift of Christmas. We were under the curse and spell and the blackest darkness and Christ Jesus came at just the right time and set us free. How? By taking our place, by becoming the cursed one. Doing that, the power that the devil had over you was broken. Broken. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. So that's our first sign that Christ, the staff of God, the shepherd of God, became the cursed serpent in order to set you free. Let's look at our second heading, the disease and its cure. Look with me, will you, at verse 6. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. This is actually the first mention of leprosy in the Bible, but it wasn't unknown at all to the ancient world. In fact, I think I was reading online that there was something only like 100 cases of leprosy in the United States uh, today. Uh, Leprosy was, was... largely made treatable by the 1940s. But up until the 1940s, leprosy was essentially incurable. Uh, It's an infectious disease. It causes severe, disfiguring skin sores, uh, nerve damage in the arms and legs. If you guys have seen the movie uh, Braveheart, Robert the Bruce's father had leprosy and his face was like half falling off. In the castle tower. What would Israel have known about this disease? Well, they would have known that it is entirely incurable. Um, There is no 
human remedy in the ancient world. To get leprosy in the ancient world was was not only a, a, a certain death sentence, but it was to live in complete exile. When God uh, later gave the law to Moses about leprosy, the, lepros, the leper was to live in isolation outside of the camp. Leviticus 13, 45 through 46 says this, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So this leprous hand that Moses pulled out of his his bosom was a sign of an incurable and shameful disease. But what does the second part of this sign signify? Let's look at verse 7. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. God here was communicating that he was confident that Israel would have understood it immediately. Namely, that though Israel had been plagued, made sick with slavery and cruelty for two centuries, God was now going to heal them. Their slavery was beyond all human remedy, but God himself was going to come and cure the Israelites. Not only that, but as we're soon going to find out, God was going to transfer their leprosy onto the nation of Egypt. Um, There's a reason why the ten plagues are called the ten plagues. Uh, In Exodus 9, 14, God himself calls these judgments plagues. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants, on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So this sign tells the story of Israel being cured from this disease of slavery from Almighty Jehovah. No one had a remedy save God himself. Hopefully you can already see the deeper truth. Dear congregation, this second sign is for you. Christ cured you of the incurable disease of sin by bearing it on himself. Listen again to how Jonathan Edwards puts it here. By Moses' hand is represented the hand or the arm of the Lord which often in the Old Testament signifies the Messiah. By God plucking his hand out of his bosom is meant his appearing for the salvation of his people. At length, the arm of the Lord is made bare. The Messiah appears, but in such a manner that it was to the surprise and astonishment of those who saw him. Isaiah 52 14, many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
they were offended at him. Isaiah 53, 2. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Christ appeared in the form of sinful flesh. He was, as it were, diseased with leprosy because he took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. He was made sin for us as though he had been all over leprous or sinful. Now, if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you understand that it has been long understood that leprosy is a type and sin is the anti-type. Leprosy destroys the outward man, disfiguring him, defiling him, but, but sin destroys the inner man. It defiles us. It disfigures us. It makes us ugly and loathsome. How is leprosy dealt with in the Old Testament? By a priest. A priest had to go outside of the camp to meet with the leper, Leviticus 14.3. He made an atonement for the leper, Leviticus 14.10. And only after these steps were done could the man ever be declared clean, Leviticus 14.19. So God could heal the man, but he could not be cleansed apart from the work of the priest. He could not be declared clean. There's a progression here in the signs. The first sign showed you your slavery to sin. This sign shows you your defilement, your impurity. Beloved, it is this thing, sin, that causes the ugliness of your soul. Mondays are my day off. And I've been running a little experiment in my own mind on Monday mornings as I'm sitting with my family. I, I'm asking, how long can we make it through this day before we sin? How long before the little foxes spoil the vineyard in our safe home? Can we make it through coffee? You can call me tomorrow, I'll tell you. Can we make it through breakfast? Can we make it through devotions? That's generally where we get caught up, because we're doing something holy, right? Will you shut up and listen, please? How long does it take for that leprosy of selfishness and pride and anger to rear its head? Try running that experiment in your home. When you're all together, how long can you make it with your family before leprosy starts appearing? Or if you live by yourself and you don't have anyone to fight with, that's very convenient, um, how long before thoughts of suspicion and lust and pride and accusation start putrefying your soul? What about when you go to work? Do you make your workplace a haven of peace or do you contribute to the leper colony? 
Don't you see that the only place that is fit for us is isolation outside of the camp? Apart from Jesus Christ, your soul, my soul is ugly, it's defiled, it's deformed, it's loathsome. If leprosy disgusts you, project that onto your soul. And and this truth is especially applied to those who have not yet believed the gospel. Um, Five times in our passage, the problem is unbelief. Uh, Moses asks, what if they don't believe? And God gives answers by these signs. And so let me offer to you something, dear unbelieving friend. Your problem is not a lack of evidence. You have, uh, you, you have an ocean of evidence. Christmas is an evidence of the truth of Christ. Isaiah seven fourteen. therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And on the other side, Christ's resurrection is evidence of the truth of Christianity. Acts 17, 31, God has fixed the day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance, a sign, by raising him from the dead. Nobody's problem is a lack of evidence. Our problem is that we have leprous hearts. And dear unbelieving friend, your heart has become disfigured and deformed due to sin, and only Christ can cleanse you. If you reject him, he'll cast you out. You'll you'll waste away for all eternity, so cry out to him. Jesus, master, cleanse me, have mercy on me, wash me, I've been defiled, purify me. That's the scandal of Christmas. God sent forth his son into the world to heal us of our incurable disease. That's why we see Jesus dealing with lepers in the gospel. Jesus is healing them. He's fulfilling the sign that was given to Moses. That's why we just sang that song. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. That's why we see Jesus being crucified outside of the camp because he became unclean in our place. This is the gospel, loved ones. Matthew 8, 17, that he took on our illnesses. He bore our disease. And here's the good news. If you belong to Christ, then your leprosy has been cured. Yes, you might not be able to make it five minutes in family time without sinning. But guess what? The power of sin has been broken. The penalty of sin has been abolished. And very soon, you will be free from the presence of sin. When you're in Christ's own presence. That's our second sign. That Christ cured us from our incurable disease of sin by bearing it upon himself. Let's look finally then at the water and the blood. Please look with me at verse 9. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water 
that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, this is the one sign that wasn't immediately shown to Moses. He was told this is what will happen later when he's in Egypt. But this was the first plague that was given to Egypt. This particular plague had the priority. Why? How would the Israelites have interpreted this sign? What was significant about the Nile? Well, we only have to go back a couple chapters. The Nile was a, a grave site of the little Hebrew baby boys that Pharaoh had ordered the Egyptians to throw into the Nile. Thousands upon thousands of baby boys lost their lives in that river. It became a river of blood. And now God, the Lord, was going to take that very river, which the Egyptians worshipped as a god, and they were going to he was going to transform it into a river of death. And the significance of this would not have been missed upon the Israelites. Blood, curse, where does that come from? Oh, Cain and Abel. They would have remembered that when Cain killed Abel, God had heard the blood of Abel cry out from the land. Genesis 4, 10 through 11, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The blood of the Hebrew babies was calling out from the Nile. And now God was going to turn it into a curse for their sakes. So this sign tells the story of, of God's avenging the innocent blood of the Hebrew babies upon the Egyptians who had spilt it. But there's a deeper truth for us. Your congregation, this sign is for us. All of us are, are just as guilty as the Egyptians. The only types of people that God saves are guilty, ugly, defiled, deformed, loathsome creatures. You might say, well, Pastor Josh, I, I'm certainly not as bad as these Egyptians. I've never murdered anyone. How can you say I'm just as guilty? Because Jesus said so. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Have you ever been sinfully angry? And you are liable to judgment. And God will avenge that. God will avenge that blood. This is the, the wonderful news about Christmas. That God had sent his son to the world to be that judgment. To receive that avenge, avenging sword into his own soul. What happened to Jesus on the cross? What came forth from his side when the soldiers pierced him? John 19.34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. That's our sign. 
that God avenged our blood guilt by taking it from the side of his own son. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. You see, loved ones, the first sign that we saw this morning dealt with liberating us from the serpent. The second sign dealt with cleansing the leprosy of our sin. But it's this third sign that shows how God accomplished these things by opening up the fountain of blood from his own son. That's why we sing that song, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And the sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. The sinner plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. God cannot free us. From the serpent, he cannot cleanse our leprosy by mere mercy. He cannot say, let's just let bygones be bygones. Just try to be a little bit better from here on out. I'll show you mercy for your past sins. And and let's just, just call it square. God is just. God is just just as much as he is merciful. And he demands justice. That's why Egyptians' river turned to blood, because he required justice from them. And God demands justice from your sins. That's why God opened up his sign and blood gushed out. I hope that you see as we're going through the book of Exodus that this is the only thing that ever happens in the Bible. It's just this is the story of Christ redeeming his people. Christ is the true and better Moses. The blood of the Nile is a mere shadow of that boundless river of blood that's available to sinners when they come to Christ. This is what we're going to sing here in a moment. Christ, the true and better Moses, called to lead a people home, standing bold to earthly powers, God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven, see the waters part in two. See the veil is torn forever. Cleansed with blood, we pass now through. So dear congregation, receive this charge as we finish. Receive this charge. Look to these signs and believe. You might be thinking, well, I'm, I'm already a believer. So was Moses. Signs are meant to help us to, to build up our faith, to strengthen us, to, vi- to give us vitality, to animate us, to renew us, to energize us. These signs are meant to make you grow. It's what the Lord's Supper is meant to do, which we're about to take, to nurture, to feed your faith. So look at all of these signs and believe. Look at the serpent. The true and better Moses grabbed it by the tail, turned it into a dead stick. Satan no longer has power over your soul. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Look to the leprous hand. It's now healed. Your your plague has been removed. What sins have you committed that are so wicked that cannot be cleansed? What sins? wounds 
have been so deep that you cannot be healed by him? What defilement has so soiled you that you could not be cleansed? Look to the boundless river of blood. If you pile up all of your sins from youth to now and, and, and made it into a big mountain, if you threw that into the river of blood, it would be no bigger than a pebble of sand. Let, let that wash over you this morning. Look to Christ, the true and better Moses, and believe. Look to the serpent slayer. Look to the leper healer. Look to that bottomless river of blood that cleanses you from all sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice at the power and clarity of your word, Lord, even in these types. These types are little crumbs that lead to a treasure. We don't have to guess what these things are. Your word explains it. And so, God, we pray that you would nurture our faith with these signs. Nurture our faith with the Lord's Supper that we're about to take. Raise us up to the heavenly places that we may eat and drink with your Son. For we pray these things in his name.